We're looking at uh, Paul coming to Europe and preaching the gospel to pagan Europe. We're looking at it in Acts chapter 17, and this morning we come to verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Chapter 17 and verse 29. Paul has explained to these Greek philosophers the nature of uh, the one and only God, the creator, the sustainer of all of life. And now he advances. And now he tells them how this God is to be worshipped. He tells them who God is, mighty creator, God of providence. Now he says, how you are to worship him? I want us to pause and just think of the courage of the evangelist, how brave he was, what a gutsy preacher, utterly unafraid. And in this incident, in Acts 17, he reminds me of Daniel in the den of lions. A number of factors illustrate his bravery. Uh, He was all by himself. There was no group of people, there was no friendly eye that he could catch in the Areopagus that was saying, preach it to them. Paul, nothing like that. He was in Athens, the very heart, the fulcrum of Hellenism, Greek philosophy and the arts and culture. It's there. He wasn't in a little fishing village a hundred miles away up the Greek coast. And in that city, he was on Mars Hill at a meeting of the Areopagus, required to give an account of himself to this council of the leading philosophers and aristocrats of Athens. He was explaining to them the truth of Christianity that he'd been preaching in the marketplace for a week or more. And all of his hearers, without exception, were idol worshippers. And he didn't flinch in showing to them the total contrast between their kind of worship or ideas of how God was to be worshipped and the living God and how he is to be worshipped. There was no statement to the effect, oh well, uh, these Greeks like to worship God in the way they believe you can worship him, while uh, Paul preferred to worship Jehovah in his way. They're all different paths, and they were all leading up the same mountain. No, there was nothing like that at all. The paths that the Greeks were taking was, were leading them up Mount Olympus. And on Mount Olympus, that fictional place, the gods hoard and fought and cursed their opponents and blessed their yes-men. Paul's path was going up a different mountain entirely, Mount Calvary where the Son of God, because he knew all about us and loved us and saw our guilt and shame, became the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that would take away our guilt and reconcile a holy God to us because of the price that Jesus Christ had paid. By him alone we come to God. That is what Paul was saying. If you see in the 18th verse in the marketplace, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. That was what he was determined to proclaim. So we see his courage. 
We see his courage also because surrounding him on the Areopagus, on Mars Hill, were three of the most imposing idols in all the Greek world. All of them depicted the goddess Athene, the patron saint of the city from whom the city got its name. He was preaching in the shadow of this triad of idols. And he was fearless. He had told Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and self-discipline. Though there were these three three idols. The first was a big, ugly idol, an ancient statue of Athene. And its worshippers say that this statue had fallen all the way from the planet Jupiter. And so they venerated it, not because of its prettiness, but because of its antiquity. The next statue of Athene, then, well, it had been made by the most famous of Greek sculptors, a man called Phidias, and it was made of ivory and gold. You can see the contrast then, this hulk, and then this beautiful modern statue. It was 100 years old. And then the third statue, Athene, was huge. It was the size of Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square. And in it, Athene was portrayed as a warrior queen with a long spear that she held in her hand. And 20 miles out to sea in the Saronic Gulf, sailors could see the sun glinting on that spear that she held in her hand. So there were the three, and he was speaking about the follies of idolatry in the shadow of this triad. We should not think, he said, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by man's design and skill. So he was simply preaching to them the timeless message that God had loved the world and God had sent his son after sending prophets and doing great things through them and wonderful words by them now in the fullness of time. God sent his son, who is the divine image, our God in the flesh. And the choice before us this morning then, the choice before the students at the university and the people of Aberystwyth is between worshipping Jesus Christ or worshipping some kind of idol. You cannot have them both. Now in a democracy we have certain freedoms, don't we? That are denied and made illegal and punished by many different totalitarian regimes. There would be spies in many parts of the world who would infiltrate a meeting like this to find out what I was preaching about. In Aberystwyth, Muslims may freely worship in the building they are using as a mosque off uh, Llanbadan Road. Every Friday they may be there. The cults can hold their worship services. Occasionally we have uh, a visit from uh, Hare Krishna and we hear them hit their drums and ring their tambourines and bells and uh, freedom to do that to evangelize and gather together and tell people what we believe that's crucial for every every democracy but when we're in the church we, we, we're not free to 
I'm not free to say what I want to say or what I feel. And neither are you. And if you hold any office in the church, you can't do that. Um, We're limited because God says, worship me in this way. He says, this is the kind of service, God says, that gives me delight. Did I say I, I wanted this sort of activity? When you gather together in my name, and so I'm saying to you, just uh, by way of introduction, I just admire the courage of this brave young apostle as he stands before them and, and looks at them. And there's not a sympathetic smile or an attentive face as there is with so many of you as he spoke to them. Secondly, I want to say something about what's wrong with idolatry. Image worship, you understand, is making and telling a lie about God. That's what makes it so terribly serious. God is full of incomparable glory, while the idol is like corruptible men and beasts. The idol is a visual deceit. God is the invisible spirit. Idols are material and visible. And that's a, that's a lie. Let me summarize what's wrong with idolatry. The first thing that is wrong with idolatry is that it is an attempt to control God. Some of you know the Catechism's definition of God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The God that is presented to us in that uh, brilliant answer is an immense God. And then we learn from Scripture that the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet that these three are one God. There is one being, and there are three persons. And we have no experience of anything like that. I can't compare that to anything in creation. That is how God is. Everything else we see is one, just one. I'm one and you're one and this building is one and this world is one and one alone. Everything around us had its origin. You had a beginning. We celebrated somebody's birthday 90 years ago. He began. But God had no beginning. God is from eternity to eternity. And so the God of the Bible is different, and that is where the danger lies. That he can seem inaccessible and remote because he's different from ourselves. I mean, if you think of God exclusively as somebody omnipotent and infinite and invisible, then you are encouraged to a sort of reaction a sort of counterpoise in, in order to bring him close. And so to bring him close, what men have done, is to build, to make, to design an icon of God. And they've done that all through history, of course. And that is, in the end, an attempt to control him. It's an attempt to reduce him. 
to manage him, to bring him down to our level, to our size. Idol makers are attempting to bring the Almighty down to manageable proportions so that we can control him. We'll put him inside four walls of a temple with a a roof over him. We'll put him within a statue. And then we know where he is. And we make him accessible to us and we can go to him whenever we please. And we do something for him there so that he will, in turn, do something for us that we ask him to do. But the reverse is the case. The truth is God controls us. We live and move and have our being in God. That's what Paul has said in the previous verse. Our life, our movements, and our character are all in God. He is sovereign. He is sovereign to bring me here with this message and you here to hear it this morning. He is sovereign to save, to enlighten, to regenerate, to recreate, to bless. Of God and through God and to God is everything that happens to us. There was an incident in um, the Old Testament. It, it took place, it's recorded in in First Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites are fighting, people of God are fighting, the Philistines, and the Philistines are just tanking them. They're beating them so easily. And so the Israelites tried a last-ditch attempt now to get the victory. They brought the Ark of the Covenant with them into the battle. And when the troops saw the Ark of the Covenant coming in, they whooped with delight and danced for joy. What was the problem? The problem was they were treating the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm. And instead of victory over the Philistines, there was a second defeat. And in this defeat, the Ark itself was captured. And it was booty for the Philistines. The ark, you see, by itself was powerless. The ark was just an ornament. It was a mere box made out of acacia wood with a a gold top to it. And as soon as the Lord disassociated himself from it, when he saw it it had been turned into a a St. Christopher medal, a good luck charm, then he quit. God quit the box. You know, modern folklore, Harrison Ford... Um, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Ark there is imagined, it's hidden away somewhere. Ah, One day it will be found in a cave somewhere in the Middle East. It's like an atom bomb. It gives off radiation in the film, in men's minds. And if it was discovered today, it would give to the discoverers preternatural powers. Now, if the old box was one day discovered, it would just be a dusty old box with as much power as any shoebox. And that's true for every image of God that people make. God is free totally to disassociate himself 
from it. So in history, we have all the representations of God that there are somehow Stonehenge and the Standing Stones in Pembrokeshire and totem poles and idols and some are carved and embellished with paint and precious stones and gold leaf and in, the, in these ways, people are trying to grasp the God who fills eternity. The Old Testament Christians knew the, that God had spoken to them. They heard his voice. They actually heard the voice of God at Sinai. And God spoke to them through the prophets. And uh, the God who spoke to them established a, a tabernacle, his home. And just outside it, the great altar of sacrifice. There was no way you could get to him without first making a sacrifice at the altar. That was the way you approached God. And yet all the time that that happened, during the 1400 years of the Old Covenant, from, uh, say, the time of Moses to uh, the arrival of Jesus in the world, God was preparing them for something much better. The way to himself was incomplete. It was a dotted line to him. It it hadn't been completed yet. Um, And the incompleteness was because God had promised in the beginning someone would come who would uh, crush the head of the serpent. He said that. He would bruise the serpent's head. And he hadn't come yet. There was no Messiah yet who had come. And so there's incompleteness in the Old Testament. And it was shown in this remarkable way in the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. The Holy of Holies. You know, there was uh, the, 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 the tabernacle, the temple. They were both built about this size. And um, about here, there was the holy place where there was... Uh, showbread tables and the candelabra and uh, uh, there was uh, an altar of incense and then there was a curtain, a great curtain and in a cube at this end of the holy place there was the holy of holies and once a year the, the priest could pull aside the curtain and he went with blood um, uh, and he sprinkled it on the ark the ark was a, a chair The ark was a throne. It was a seat. And it it, it had on its top gold. And it's called the mercy seat. That's how Tyndale, William Tyndale, beautifully translated it. The mercy seat. Listen now. No one ever sat on that seat. It was always empty. It was always vacant. The seat spoke about the one who was to come. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of peace. He was to come. He hadn't come yet. The seat was empty for this great king who one day would come. God would send someone in his own image. To occupy that throne and he would exercise such power. His power would be over demons. The devil, more powerful. 
His power would be over nature. He could speak and the winds and the waves would obey him. His power was over disease, any kind of disease, the last stages of a life-threatening disease and Jesus was more powerful. Death. And this great king who came from heaven was more powerful than that itself. He would come. He came. He tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent where all those things of the devil and uh, disease and death have such a power. The seed of the woman would come and would crush the serpent's head. He would come. He would come in the fullness of time. God's time. Not when we said, when we clicked our fingers and God would come running. Not that God was sovereign to choose the time. And uh, all their attempts to bring him near. For example, they they made a a cow out of gold. And they said to Israel, behold, uh, this is your God. Moses set up a on a pole, a a brazen serpent, a serpent made of brass that shone that the people looked at. They treasured it. Then they started to worship that brazen serpent too. It never brought God any nearer. We can't control God by our idols. That's the first thing that's wrong with idols. The second thing that's wrong with idols is they failed to capture the majesty of God. And so in the Old Testament, idols and those who make them are disdained. They are a hoot. No respect is given to them at all. How could anyone respect the worship of an idol? Think, for example, of Psalm 115. They have mouths but cannot speak. Eyes but they cannot see. They have ears. They can't hear. Noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. Feet, but they can't walk. They can't utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all be who trust in them. Psalm 115, verses 5 to 8. There's no divine majesty about an idol. Right, I want you all to turn to Isaiah 44, and I want us all to read together some verses. Read aloud from Isaiah 44. It's the great section, the derision of idol worship. In Isaiah chapter 44, it's wonderful poetry, and it's magnificent literature. You children, now you've learned to read. And so let's show you read with mum and dad. They'll help you to find the place in the middle of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 14 to 20. These uh, seven verses, we'll read them together. Have you found them? In the rustling has ended. Isaiah 44 and Isaiah is talking about the man who makes and worships idols. Okay, here we go. He cuts down cedars. Or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest. Or planted a pine. And the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. 
Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see. And their minds closed so that they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Good. What wonderful disdain, holy disdain for the utter folly of idol making and idol worship. Paul tells us, tells the Romans, that men worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So, when the living God appears, um, when God chooses to bless our congregation, when God chooses to bless you and your family, then he gives conviction of your need and of your sinfulness. And he gives you a stirring of life and illumination and understanding and a new birth. And you will destroy your idols. Unconverted idol worshippers flee from their icons. They go to clefts and to crags of the rocks. They go away from God's consuming fire. You, you understand, can't you, what's wrong? How inadequate idols are. You say you, you make God in the form of a, a mighty bull. Huge shoulders, you know and, and horns, a, a great bull. You see them at the, at the Welsh show in, in Bilth Wells, don't you? Extraordinary, how big as an elephant. You say, that's the might, that's the power of our God. Yes, but where's God's compassion? And when's, where is God's patience and tenderness and pity? Or you carve an idol to a gorgeous woman or a very compassionate older woman. How does that image convey the righteousness of God? God's justice. God's holiness. You see, our God's attributes are many. We've been reminded of the simplicity of God. That he's not simply a God of strength or a God of beauty or a God of tenderness or a God of righteousness or 
uh, a triune God. He's all of those things, all of those graces and many more. And an idol, it, it just absolutizes one aspect of God. How can you worship? How can you worship some inadequate idol who needs to be washed and cleaned and vacuumed each week? All idols are subject to decay, to wormwood and theft and looting and redundancy. God says, I am the Lord. I do not change. Our Lord Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is sovereign majesty. We, we, we can't put him where we want him. Say, so, well, I've, got, I've done the God thing. I put him somewhere safe. He's in our grasp. He's under our control. God surprises us. God humbles us. He gives us the wine of astonishment to drink. We'll reel and stagger like drunken men when God starts to to deal with us. All we do, we've taught the children this this morning, lies naked and open in his sight. All he does doesn't lie naked and open in our sight. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son reveals him. So, the second thing that's wrong with idols is that they fail to capture the sovereign majesty of God. And the third thing that's wrong with idols is that it's a failure to believe what God says, God's covenant promises. There's no need for us to find us a spot somewhere, some little corner somewhere, and and put a, a, a statue up in our meeting. Because of what the Lord says. The Lord says, I'll never leave you, nor nor forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the world, where two or three gather together in my name. I'm there in your midst, he says. There is no need for someone who has a vivid imagination and a lot of money doesn't know what to do with to consider then he thinks of Jesus like this, a sort of beard and a bit Hollywoodish. And then he invites the sculpture and he gives him a sketch of what uh, he would like the statue to be. And then the the next thing we know is uh, that a statue turns up, um, the post office delivers it, and he wants it to be on show here. An icon? An icon of Jesus? No way! Christ Christ is here now! Jesus stands among us now in his risen power. A pastiche of Jesus would detract from his real presence. Imagine a husband and um, he makes a, a mannequin likeness of his wife. And he, and he puts it in various rooms of the house in the front room where they spend the evening. He, he puts this mannequin there and he carries it upstairs to the bedroom in the night. Is his wife happy about this development? Of course not. She's insulted. She's angry. You have me, she protests. What need of that thing to remind you of me? I'm here. I'm not dead. God is not unreachable. God is not capricious. He keeps his word. We don't need a telescope to scour the heavens to look for him. We don't need to go to uh, 
the radio telescope in Jodrell Bank and we hear faint cracklings from a billion miles away. God's commandment is not in heaven or beyond the horizon over the bay. So that you cry out, uh, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring him to us? That we may hear him and we may do his will. Because he's made his promise and he says the word is near you. The word is near you. It's in your ears. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. It's in your mouth. It's the word of faith that is preached to you that you believe in day by day. In other words, there is no God in all the universe, no Lord in all the universe that is as close to his people as our Lord is. We don't see him. Of course we don't see him or touch him. He comes. He speaks to us. He meets with us week by week. And if you are not hearing him, there is something wrong in your walk with God. And no need of a statue of God today. It would be no help to us whatsoever to have a symbol, a a sign, a, a cross, a crucifix, a statue here, an idol here. It would suck out the blessing of God. It would grieve the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. We walk by faith, not by sight. Well, you, you know the, the all sorts of idols that we have today. Um, all kinds of idols, aren't there? Sport and sex, an enormous idol, that. And uh, your iPad, your wife, your children. I was uh, visiting a, a woman. She said, oh, my neighbor, she idolizes her son. You know, when he writes her a letter, she comes and she sits with me and she reads his letter me. And his letter is all about the follies of the government <laughs> and what the government is doing wrong. Imagine you write to your mum and you write about the government to mum. She wants to hear about how the children are getting on and how you are. And she idolizes her son. And this poor woman has to listen to it. She writhes in silent agony, longing for the letter to come to an end. Idols. We sing, the dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from the throne and worship only thee. I want to go on now to this point where we see the image of God. So I'm saying to you, My intolerance of idols, I trust, is a reflection of my Savior's intolerance, my God's intolerance. Um, I would be as he is. And that was the message that this brave young preacher, Paul, brought in Athens, on Mars Hill, to the Areopagus. Don't make an image of God, he says scorning Athene's three images that are surrounding him there. Because God has sent his incarnate son. He is the one who sits on the empty throne, and he does so today, and he rules over us on the right hand of God. And he's brought us here. He has... Only God has this combination of um, 
an aesthetic sense to make his son Jesus Christ the most beautiful object in all the universe and the power to translate this concept that he has of the glorious nature of his son into reality so that at the right hand of God there is this glorious marvelous figure that one day we're going to see we Christians are going to see him and he's brought us here today away from the idols that mess up our lives so much only God can Make an image of himself. Angels can't do it. In vain the firstborn seraph tries to make an image of, of God. And, and he fails. Um, God says, I'll do it. I will show you more clearly than ever before what I'm like. My son. My son is equal to me in power and glory. He has my names and my attributes and all my works he can do, he is with me, and he will come, and, and he will live among you, and he will share totally in your life, and he will be accessible, especially to a little family in Nazareth for 30 years, and then out into Galilee and to Jerusalem. And in him you will behold my glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So I don't want, now God is saying, I don't want any more sacrifices. I don't want any more offerings. I don't want any priest to dress up or build a uh, a temple. That, That had its use, and now it's come to an end, because the shadow has been replaced by the reality. So Jesus Christ has come. And everything he is and everything he's done uh, reveals God to us. We have no... Uh, as you know, vivid description of him at all. Um, Josephus doesn't tell us what he was like. And the gospel writers don't tell us how tall he was or what color eyes he had. We have no description of Jesus at all. So every picture that you have of him is of um, human imagination. It's a portrait also just of his human nature. But Jesus, you see, wasn't just one who was possessed with the human nature, which he was, bone of our bone. But he also had a divine nature. As if he wasn't man, as if he was only God. And he was God as if um, he wasn't simply man. Two natures in one person. Now, this is the problem. Um, Any of you that one day will work for a, a Christian publishing firm will know that you have this problem when it comes to children's storybooks. And, you know, they do it excellently. They do it. Evangelical Christian publishers like the Banner and Evangelical Times and um, Christian Heritage and all those. The challenge is to present the physicality of Jesus, that he was a real man, to present that to, to children. Without a portrait of Jesus. That's a great thing. Because to look at Jesus in the face is to worship God. And so you do it, they do it in, in, in wonderful ways. Uh, uh, and you can give 
safely to children children's storybooks with pictures of people there and a figure whose back is to us or uh, um, has just turned his head and we, we know he's a real person. We're not seeking to capture then his face. There are films, aren't there? Campus, Campus Crusade, they've got this film um, with an actor playing our Lord. At the end of the film, he says, come unto me. That's what he says. He looks in the camera, big zooming in, and, and, and this actor says, come to me, as if he were the real Jesus. There's Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ. I know a man. I've, I spoke to him many times about the gospel. He's no interest in the gospel. He loves this film. The last time I talked to him, he told me he had seen it four times. He didn't want to worship God. He has no interest in the Bible. He didn't pray. Here is a sinful actor, directed and produced by sinful men. And he's acting the human nature of Christ. But Jesus isn't just human, is he? And no mortal can act the divine nature of Christ and do fake miracles. So there's distortion. But ah, in the Bible you meet the God-man. You meet him, don't you? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.15 For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9 So you freeze-frame Jesus on his knees, washing the feet of his disciples. That's God. You see Jesus hanging on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's God. You see him making a whip of cords and driving then the cheats and the thieves out of the temple. That's the righteousness of God the compassion of God, the holiness of God. You hear Jesus saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm coming to take you to myself. That's the mercy of God to sinners like ourselves. He speaks of the fires that are not quenched and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth and the bottomless pit. And that's God's reaction to sin. And you tremble. Whatever we add to our worship, that God makes no requirements about, in the end, that becomes a real problem of idolatry. Like uh, christening services now. What the priest says when he sprinkles water on the baby's head and he says, this child is now a child of God. And they eat cake and they have a party and they go home. Many human additions, once they get added to a worshipping congregation, then they can't be removed. You just split a church. Once you allow things into a church that God doesn't want, what need do we have to add things to our worship? We can't see Jesus 
He's walking the aisles now. He's sitting next to you now. He's nudging you. He's saying, are you listening? I'm talking to you. I brought you here to say these words to you. You know that, that Jesus is doing that just now? On the Mount of Transfiguration, um, God spoke, he says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And his Spirit works, and he gives life and light and understanding. And the Spirit uses that to open our hearts for worship. Our worship is spiritual and our worship is physical. My voice, you sitting in pews, listening, this hour and a quarter of worship that goes by on a a Sunday morning. And and we respond to it, don't we? We say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my lips, take my hands, take my feet, take my intellect, take my heart, take my all. We respond physically to the word that has come to us and addresses our hearts. Let me tell you about a young man. And this young man, he prepared a place of worship in his room, in college. He set up on the wall um, Salvador Dali's picture of Christ on the cross. You know, it's sort of at an angle like that, and uh, uh, it's looking down, and there's the globe. The, the world is spinning, and it's sort of space is all around. It's a beautiful picture. It doesn't capture anything of the, the shambles and the cruelty of the cross. He put that up there. And then he put two candles, uh, each side of it. And he put a little bench in front of it. No Bible. He was seeking to create a mood for worship. You see it? You walk around old churches and you see this done everywhere. An alcove alcove for worshipping God. Certain ornaments are there and pictures and crucifixes and candles and muted light coming from a stained glass window and a faint odour of incense in the air. It's all an attempt to create a mood for worship. I'm saying to you that if you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart... If your hopes are not in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, as your only basis of forgiveness and acceptance and life eternal, you are deluding yourself by putting your faith in certain feelings that you've manufactured by going to a certain place or creating a little space for it. Jesus Christ has put God in the mood for blessing us and drawing near to us and forgiving us, and saving us, by everything that Jesus himself did for us. And you are deluded if you are trusting in some feelings of your own. He, he, the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus comes. He comes. That's why we meet together and we pray for the Spirit of God to be present on a Sunday. And that he will illuminate our minds and he will make our cold hearts warmer and he'll give us uh, concentration and understanding. And we'll cast ourselves again and fall in love again with this Jesus who is our only hope, our only way to God. 
I want to encourage you today in your worship. If you've been a Christian for any length of time. If you've walked down this road to, to glory for any length of time. Then you know your faith is like a mustard seed. You know how small it is, don't you? How desperate is your sin? And you can sing from your heart, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is cold and faint. And sometimes you say, I wonder have I ever worshipped God at all? The publican, as he left the temple that day, he beat his breast, he looked down to the dust, and then he walked out, his tail between his legs. Jesus said about him, he went out justified. He went out saved. His life was changed. He was going out thinking, oh dear, another poor day. I've not loved God as I should. God said, my child, my forgiven child. You know, John comes to the end of his letter. He writes one letter to the church. He writes two little letters to individuals. But he writes one letter. And he comes to the very end, the very last sentence. And how is he going to speak to them? What is he going to say? Is he going to say, oh, I want you to keep going. I want you, uh, uh, oh, God be with you and bless you. He comes to the very last sentence and he pauses and this is what he writes. My little children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's the message that God has brought to you today. There are idols that are a great temptation to you. That are pulling you away from loving God and serving the congregation. And you need to destroy them. You need to make a big bonfire of your idols and you need to cast yourself again on Jesus Christ alone. He's the only one who can bring you to God. Lord, we ask you to bless your word now and deliver everybody in this congregation from their idols. Oh, do it, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.